Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Sepad Pod, the Carnegie Corporation-funded podcast that is part of the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization Project, based here at Lancaster University in the Richardson Institute. Today, I'm very excited about speaking to someone who I've known for a number of years, and I've been trying to get on the show for a while, but diaries, illness, and logistics have prevented it. But it's finally happening. So, Vincent... Thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, my guest is uh, Vincent Durak, Associate Professor at uh, University College Dublin. Thank you so much, Vincent. Uh, you've got such a wonderful CV. I can't read it all out on air, I'm afraid. That would take up the time. But um, obviously, you're, you're a lecturer in Middle East politics, politics of development, terrorism, political violence, looking at civil society, political reform, external actors on the region. A big focus on Yemen, and I, I hope that's something that we'll, we'll touch on in more detail today. But also, you've got an interest in Palestine with your, um, your visiting lectureship in Middle East politics at Bethlehem University, which is wonderful. And perhaps that's something that we can touch on a little bit in our discussion. But thank you so much, Vincent. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. It's really exciting. So, Vincent, can you tell us a little bit about what made someone who um, grew up in, in the Republic of Ireland get this really strong interest in Middle East politics? You know, I wish there was a really easy answer to that question. I've been asked it before, and I've asked myself. Right. Um, I think it's a, the result of a number of things. Um some of it has to do with precisely that, with growing up in, in the Republic of Ireland in the 70s when I did, because I grew up in a country which unusually in Europe was marked by the influence and very, very deadening conservative influence of religion and public life that was also marked by uh, religious political violence. Sure. So there are all of these things going on. Um, and then when you look outside your own country and, you know, conjure with the, the world at large, there's, I guess, uh, the, you know, the beginnings of, of an understanding of the complexity of these issues. Um, why the Middle East? I'm not completely sure. I mean, it's, it's, as far back as I can remember, I've been interested, I've been reading. And out of a certain sort of vanity, I sometimes think I, I became interested particularly in the 90s, um, which was the start of my return to uh, university to do graduate study and a PhD. Right. And it was, you know, the, 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 the phrase that was so current at that time was Islamic resurgence. You know, the green pearl, the this sure. image of a threat coming from the Middle East and North Africa, that it was a combination of political and religious threat, but also a sort of almost existential threat. It's a language that we hear again. Um, and my the, the puzzle for me was things can't be that simple. Things can't be that sort of alien. That sure, yeah. Th there is there is there is rationality underpinning the politics of the region, and let's see if we can we can figure out what that might be. And I guess there you've got a number of similarities with with your own experience of, of growing up and and things that were happening much closer to home. I guess. I guess there are yeah. so many parallels. 
I mean, it's only with hindsight, and I have to say this, I didn't think at the time, oh, I, you know, I'm Irish, I've got this background, I have particular uh, insights into other parts of the world. I don't believe that particularly. Um, you know, we all come to the work we do with our, our own baggage, clearly. Sure. But, uh, but with hindsight, I do see a certain sort of uh, way of thinking about what I do now, for instance, emerging from my own experience growing up in this country in, and for better or for worse, I guess we we are all marked by by our background as we as we wrestle with the the sorts of issues, the sorts of problems that that interest us or that face us. Sure. So so you came back to academia, and and you did an MPhil at, at Trinity, and then you did a PhD at Queens. So yeah, my original background was in law, but I decided not to become rich for some reason. A very odd choice there, but um, <laughs> but at least you can still reclaim your soul. You still have your soul. So um. <laughs> Congratulations on that one. So you um, you did an MPhil and then the PhD. Were they were they on similar topics? Were they? Uh... Yeah, yeah. The MPhil was the, the the beginnings of it because my thesis. I mean, a little a modest affair, I have to say. Um, but already I was looking at the, and I think I used this terrible term, the instrumentalization of Islam in Muslim politics. And you know, it's that distinction I think that gets gets lost still between Islam as religion and the reality that we're talking about. Muslim politics, we're talking about the politics of Muslim societies. It's man-made. People know this. Sure. Um, and that then, being well-received, started me on the path of looking at doctoral research on uh, what, what turned out to be a project on Islamic political theory in Egypt. Fascinating. So at that point, who were the people that were... Were, were the key influences then? Who were the authors that you were reading that that you thought, wow, this is this is really compelling stuff and pushing you forward intellectually? Wow, that's a great question. Um, it's it's a number of people. I mean, I was thinking about this again, and the big one for me, I would say, around this period, very obviously, was Edward Said. Of course, um, Said was huge. But then other people. I mean, a lot of Western scholars. I was I was very taken with the work of John Esposito simply because he did so much to deconstruct attitudes and to uh, offer a very straightforwardly rational, empirical uh, set of insights. And I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of years ago, and um, they say, don't meet your heroes, but he turned out to be a very nice man. Oh, wonderful. Um, Reassuring. But all sorts of other people. I, I, I mean, I remember being hugely impressed by... Michael Gilsonen's recognizing Islam again for the, you know, the way that he from the very beginning deconstructs his own experience. You know, there's this wonderful opening chapter, which concludes, and this is banal in many respects, but his his reflection on an experience in colonial Yemen as it happens, right, and that really occurred to me recently. He's you know he's he's, he's talking to the the local Saeed um, in the privacy of their own homes and discovers their whiskey drinkers. He's talking to the local Shabab and they're all deferential in public, but they're all NLF revolutionaries privately. <laughs> right, and, yeah. And as a 19-year-old, he concludes, things are not as they seem. And I thought, they're not. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and when you spend any time in the region, that's exactly what you discover. It, it simply doesn't map onto, you know, popular media or sometimes even scholarly uh, responses or reductions of, of of all of that complexity. Sure, and that, I guess that's that's how you 
or looking at your your background, your intellectual journey, I guess that's how you can see your work playing out. This this effort to understand and contextualize religion in society and, and the interaction of all these different things. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 then later the the impact of the ongoing interaction between outsiders, including myself of course, but and and the region. Um which in many respects I'm more comfortable looking at than I am claiming insight on the region from the region. I can't do that, but I can I can say, well hold on a second, this doesn't this actually doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't uh reflect my experience um so can it really reflect the experience of of people in the region it's um yeah of course these are challenging questions so what do you think are the the big things that that don't reflect your experiences but where where do you think that the key dissonances are then in terms of your the expectation the assumptions and then the realities on the ground you know, I think I think some of it is as banal as, as realizing that they, you know, the longer you spend, um, and I don't want to overstate my experience, but uh, the more the more you realize that people really are pretty much the same. Um, I think there is an innate suspicion still of Islam, of Muslims, of Islamic politics. Um, there is. Uh, that long and very hard to shake off, especially in the times in which we live, association between the region and violence. Yes. And yes, and I mean you you know this. You know you 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 spend any time in just about anywhere in the Middle East, with a handful of exceptions, and you will be safer than just about anywhere in your home city or home country. Of course, of course. And you know it it, it was really interesting. I did my PhD in Belfast in Queens. Yeah. And I mean, I've told this story more than once, but I mean, the to to be travelling uh, between Belfast, Dublin, and Cairo, where I spent a long time for fieldwork for my PhD, was really instructive in mutual attitudes because the Cairo then was an extraordinarily safe city, especially if you're a male of a particular age. Of course, yeah. And, and yet, my my lovely friends in Queens who, some of whom had experienced the worst days of the Troubles, thought I was visiting a war zone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that us academics who, who speak with family who don't necessarily have that level of engagement with the region, we experience that whenever we tell them that we're going. Yeah. Right? Which, I guess, is, is sort of a bit of a Saidian legacy of Orientalism. Yeah, I think there's 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 no doubt about it. I mean, I get, I still get that sort of exoticized reaction to what I do when I tell people who I meet for the first time. You know, I work in the Middle East. I do this. I do that. Of course. And it's sort of fascination, but it is. It is very much the other. We are still, I think, firmly in that place. It would be nice to think we weren't. Which is so very odd when you think we're in a an increasingly globalized, globalizing world that that we can still have these these others that we don't know very much about and they're still held in such an exotic or or fearful way. It seems very odd to me. It, it is odd, um, and it. It persists, unfortunately, and it's even odder in many respects when you think that we 
we tend most of the time no longer to see, you know, threat to our way of life in religious terms. And yet the, the, the response to Islam and the Muslim world is so caught up in uh, notions of religion as alien. And I mean, of course, that's the other great dissonance, um, going back to your earlier question, this assumption that religion drives behavior. Yeah. And again, there's that great paragraph in Orientalism in which Said rubbishes the notion that, you know, something called Islam, Tukur, simply drives whole populations to behave in directive ways. Of course, I'm doing an injustice to his language, but... Sure, yeah, um, we take your they, point. Why do they do it? It's, I mean, one simplicity is because they hate our way of life, but I mean, behind that is because, because they're Muslim. Mm. And we need no further analysis. It is rubbish, obviously. Of course. And you wouldn't dream of interpreting German politics on the basis that they're mostly Christian. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Exactly. So I think that that's a, a pretty damning indictment of, of global politics and and global attitudes, I guess, towards towards the region. But what about in the region itself? You've spent a good deal of time there. You've done a lot of work on, on Egypt and Yemen and and the Arab uprising, civil society, democratization. How do you think this, this idea of difference and othering plays out within the region? Because obviously that's such a big thing at present, the construction of these these others, the construction of this difference. What, what? Yeah, I mean, again, a great question. I mean... I mean, one thing, of course, that's worth reflecting on, and I can't speak from direct personal knowledge of this, but I would surmise that most of the time, most people in the region aren't thinking about the outside world at all, because they have more important things to be dealing with, as in, you know, the exigencies of daily life. So, exactly, we can, you know, we can overstate the significance on a certain level of outsiders whether it's you and me or whether it's, you know, the <coughs> God between us and all harm, the, you know, incumbent president of the United States. So much of the time people are getting on with their lives. But, you know, for, for others, I think, yes, I think there is a, a very real awareness of uh, of race, of racism, of uh, rejection. Yeah. Um, of the explicit distinction that's being made between, you know, the, the superiority of our civilization, our culture versus others. Um, I think these are real, real considerations. I mean, Palestinians certainly, and I probably have my most frequent interaction with Palestinians, sure. um, are not unaware of how insignificant their concerns are to the outside world and yet paradoxically you know it's it's a part of the world that is so international I mean so many people come to visit to work engage in solidarity so there are these sort of paradoxes running through that uh, that that observation that I'm making but uh, yeah I think I think yeah. are people I, you know in Yemen and I, again I was there for the, the shortest time but it's had a huge influence on on my work um Again, people hugely aware of their perceived peripherality and how much more that must be the case now, I cannot even begin to imagine. Sure, even though uh, 
and uh, I, I say this with a degree of trepidation, but even though there is so much attention on Yemen at present, so much uh, discussion about Yemen. I've just been speaking to uh, a news outlet about the U.S. Senate uh, yes. resolution on on Yemen. So it seems to me that there is increased focus on it. But but it's interesting to hear you say that that there there is this paradox. Yeah, but I mean that focus is so belated. And yes, exactly. It is so much a function. Uh, in ways that are both encouraging and deeply troubling, you know, so much a function of the extraordinarily erratic and violent behaviour of the the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, You wonder if, you know, poor Jamal Khashoggi um, had not met his end in the consulate in Istanbul, would would we be talking the same way? No, I think that's a, a very good question. He, of course, was writing a great deal about the Yemen war at that point in the yeah. in the run up to his death, calling for for people to pay more attention to it. And and that point, there were there were myriad seemingly reports from from all types of UN agencies and international agencies stating that this is going to be the worst humanitarian crisis of all time potentially, with millions yes. of people starving. But yet that. Okay. that that was sort of given scant attention. Yes, and I mean, I, I, I think what is really troubling right now, even as we speak, um, so the negotiations got off to a good start in Sweden. Yes, the US Senate resolution is a good thing. But the level of devastation that has been caused right now is going to be very, very difficult to reverse. Sure. This, you know, talks will not remedy the destruction of health infrastructure. Talks will not very quickly address the you know, level of malnutrition in the most remote parts of the country, of which we know nothing. Yeah. And that's terrifying because this is going to happen over the next few months. Exactly. And as you say correctly, absolutely correctly, um, you know, the reports have been there since the dawn of time and... You know, named individuals have been, you know, I mean, Peter Salisbury has been writing, you know, wonderfully, but it must be so depressing for him how little attention has been paid to his work for three, four, five years now, stating explicitly, you know, if we keep this up or if we actually don't do anything about this, the following will happen. And it's happening. And I guess that that goes back to your earlier point, Vincent, about how things are viewed through particular lenses. Because whenever you would hear people talking about Yemen in the past, it was uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, it was Daesh, it was the Houthis, it was the secessionist movement. It wasn't basic, fundamental human needs. No, not at all. And it's funny, I had the the rare pleasure, I was invited to give a presentation at a conference organized by Steve Caton in on Yemen right. in twenty twelve in Harvard. Okay. And, uh, I double checked that it wasn't a hoax, obviously. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, imposter syndrome runs pretty deep. It, but, uh, it does in most of us, but uh, I think it was an invitation much deserved. But uh, and I thought, well, why do you why do you need an Irish guy to, to talk about Yemen? And it became clear I had written something on the European Union and Yemen, and what really was being required of me, asked of me, was you know to say some pretty banal things about 
Yemen having far greater developmental needs hmm. than a security prison would begin to, to, to suggest. Um, and in a, in a sense, that was my, my 15 minutes of fame. Um, just to say, Al-Qaeda isn't actually all that important. Drones aren't going to get you anywhere in dealing with the problems of the country. They'll make them worse. Exactly. Of course, Yemenis were saying this on the over the course of the two days as well. But um, this was something that, you know, it was deemed useful, at least, I won't say necessary, to have an outsider um, come in and, and say these things. And, you know, on that and on what, what we know, um, the... U.S. military commissioned a report, which I find really, really interesting, in about 2010, that concluded that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was a relatively insignificant threat, had developed some but relatively shallow roots amongst uh, you know, tribal populations in Yemen. But And this is a huge affair that was conducted in a great swathe of territory across, across the country. Um, it's not something that was widely publicised, but you know, again, uh, as the US military does, they can commission really, really good work. Yeah. Um, conclusion: We really could, should not be worrying about these these right. guys. Maybe that's overstating it, but let us put in context the level of threat we are talking about. But as you say, when you talk about Yemen, any time I've done between 2011 and today, you know. Well, the conflict has taken over now, but go back a couple of years, talk to me about Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Yeah. And the th- I think that's quite a damning indictment of, of Western engagement with, with certain parts of the Middle East. It's, it's particularly worrying, and, and everything that you've been saying up to <coughs> now, Vincent, is, is so prescient, and, 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 and please don't take this the wrong way, but it's so damn depressing... It is, and I, you know, to add to that, I think a lot of it is actually really obvious. So yeah. it's not. Um, I'd like to think that these were all extraordinarily um, new and enlightening observations. It's all really obvious stuff. Sure, and the the other thing that that concerns me is not so much. Well, it is obviously the the health infrastructure, the basic infrastructure of of daily life. But it's it's the the broader legacy of of mental health of the the sort of the latent structural impact the collective memory of difference the the sort of psychological impact the post traumatic stress disorders that are no doubt going to be across the people and if there isn't that infrastructure to deal with it that is going to have a lasting generational impact. Absolutely. I've got a phone ringing. Can I make this go away? Of course, I'm sure you can. Hello? Speaking. So that was swiftly dealt with there, Vincent. Good job. So um, where were we? Where were we before your phone rang? Where you were talking about the... The, yes, the devastating impacts down the line of uh, what is going on in the country, and I mean, again, my my thoughts on that are in a situation where you have far greater levels of institutionalisation of healthcare and social provision. These are almost impossible challenges, but where 
that either doesn't exist or has been destroyed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's almost unthinkable uh, in terms of the, the challenges that are going to follow on from whatever resolution of this, this awful conflict takes place. And it's within those conditions of uncertainty, instability, fear, doubt and, and trauma that all those other differences, all those other issues of, of politics, of tribalism, of economic concerns, of, of the construction of sect-based difference, of geopolitical fears about Iran, about Saudi Arabia, about Israel, about the US, all of those start to play out and take on more and more meaning as people yeah. capitalize. Yeah, no doubt about that. And one of, I mean, one of the, the troubling things and paradoxical as it might seem, but as, as you know, I mean, Yemen is the, you know, the great site of, of compromise, of making do, of mediation, of, strangely enough, non-violent resolution of conflict or slightly violent, but yeah. then let's work things out. Exactly. And that is really what has held the country together because, you know, like... Like a couple of others in the Middle East, it, you know, the miracle is that it has held together the way it has done um, on the basis of this extraordinary diversity of local arrangements, of shifting alliances, of patronage, clientelism. Um, but once you effect a rupture in, in those sorts of structures, those ways of doing things, it's very difficult, to, I would imagine, to, to pull them back together again. Yeah, and I guess that's the fear, the big concern, the big worry, that something really has to be done, and done soon, to not only bring this conflict to an end, but to give Yemenis the the support that they really need to move beyond this. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I, I hope, I sincerely hope I'm wrong, and that, you know, it is the case that uh, all of these ways of of coping, of, of surviving and of getting on can simply be reconstituted and perhaps that is the the, the genius of of the, the Yemenis that they, they will be able to do this. Well, let's hope. But Vincent, I'm very conscious we've taken up a lot of your time, so what I'd like to do is just thank you so much for giving up your time. It's been wonderful, fascinating, if rather depressing to talk to you. And that's a reflection of the topic, not you, I should say. But um, it's been really kind of you to give up your time. I look forward to, to speaking with you again some point soon and, and, and keep reading the, the work that you're producing. It's absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. My pleasure. I can assure you. Thank you.